I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, science writer Ed Yong explores the hidden realms and senses of the animal kingdom and marvels at the beauty, so much of which we cannot see. Scallops are familiar to most people as like little lumps of flesh on a plate. But they are real animals. There's a whole animal inside that beautiful shell. And on the rim of that shell are dozens, if not hundreds, of small eyes. The eyes can look really beautiful. Some species, they're electric blue, like little neon blueberries. And later, have you ever watched your dog or cat dream? It's one thing to say that animals dream and that humans dream, and therefore to establish a parallel between those two claims. But it's a whole other thing to say that animals dream in the same way that we dream. The hidden wonders and mysteries of the animal world, and how science, philosophy, and imagination can help us make sense of how animals see, feel, and dream. That's coming up on Life Examined. When it comes to everyday life, it's no surprise that we all live, to some degree, in our own sensory bubbles. But take a step back for a moment and try and imagine what the world feels like from the perspective of, say, a robin, a dog, or even a mosquito. It's hard, in part because we're informed by our own experiences and perspectives, which we naturally impose on other creatures. But there are sounds, colors, and smells completely invisible to human eyes, ears, and noses. Songbirds, turtles, and bumblebees travel long distances using Earth's magnetic fields. Bats and dolphins navigate darkness using echolocations. There are thousands of creatures with beautifully tuned sensors that provide them with a vastly different experience of our planet that we know or can imagine. In his latest book called An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us, author Ed Young celebrates the amazing superpowers of animals and introduces us to a world, in some cases literally, seen through their eyes. Ed Young is a science writer for The Atlantic. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of the pandemic, and he joins me now. Ed Young, welcome to Life Examined. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, this book is just filled with a lot of mesmerizing stories about how animals perceive the world or other creatures in ways that we almost can't even really fathom as humans. And I, I wonder what drew you in to this really wonderful subject that I think we know very little about as, as just a general audience. It's something that I've been fascinated with, um, fascinated by for a long, long time. Um, and the actual idea for this book came from my wife, um, who mm. uh, did a degree in marine biology. Um, she started studying um, the ways in, with, in which uh, coral reef fish see color. Um, and she was fascinated by this, uh, this world, too. Um, so the, the idea for the book comes from her, um, but it, it really represents um, the culmination of you know, more than a decade of writing about um, the, the incredible world of ants and elephants and songbirds and, and all the rest. Mm, you know, I, it, it occurs to me that so much research into into the world or into the idea of, of senses is to just figure out uh, how it is that humans see the world or learn more about ourselves. But this book kind of pushes us aside and says, I, I just want to understand what it's like to, you know, occupy the consciousness of another creature. Does, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I think a lot of scientists study animals as proxies for ourselves, as so-called mm -hmm. model organisms, or as inspirations for technology. And, and that can certainly be fruitful. You know, we have telescopes whose designs are based, based on the eyes of lobsters. Um, but I wanted to look at animals for their own sake. You know, I want to know, for example, when I walk my dog, uh, Typo, who's a corgi, um, around our neighborhood, what is he experiencing? You know, what does he get from his sense of smell and all, all his other senses? I think by doing, by thinking about that, um, you know, we don't get like material goods, but we get an expansion of our understanding of the world. Uh, we realize that our perception of the world, though it seems complete, is actually really limited. And we're really only perceiving a thin sliver of the fullness of reality. And by looking at what other animals are doing, I think we can see even the most familiar of our surroundings in a new and magical light. Mm. One term that comes up a lot in this is umwelt. I hope I'm saying that correctly. But, but I, I, it frames a lot of the way that you approach this book. What does that word actually mean? So it means the sensory bubble that each animal is um, is uh, living within. So my umwelt, for example, is dominated by vision. Um, and what I can see, uh, the colors I can see extend from red to violet. 
Um, my dog's umwelt is dominated by smell, and the colours he can see um, are much narrower, going from yellow to blue. But he picks up a lot more than what I do in other ways. He hears frequencies I can't hear. He smells things I can't smell. And then other animals can also detect other um, bits of information in the world that are not part of my umwelt, but are part of theirs. A songbird can detect the magnetic field of the earth. A shark can detect the electric fields given off by other animals. Yeah. So each creature has its own sensory bubble, its, its own umwelt, its own ways in which its world is expanded and broadened, but also ways in which that world is limited. You mentioned electromagnetic fields. This is this is a term I'm sure many of us are familiar with, but I think what it really is is something that's almost beyond fascinating and something that humans don't really have access to. So can we explore what, what that is and which animals really take advantage of this sense? Sure. So um, the Earth is uh, enveloped in its own magnetic field. Um, that's what our compasses are tuning into to show us where, where North is. But a lot of animals have their own internal compasses. Um, that, so a lot of migrating songbirds, like really simple ones, like robins, um, sea turtles, some simple insects, um, can, uh, can work out which way to go when they're navigating over long distances even when all other landmarks are obscured by night or by cloud, um, they can still fly or swim in the right direction thanks to this ability to sense Earth's magnetic field. Interesting. I mean, does this explain the incredible specific locations in which a bird can return to the same tree or to the exact same pasture that it might have before? Is that related as well? Partly. Um, so you know, salmon are very notable for being able to do this, returning to the exact um, river in which they're born. And that's a, likely a combination of um, a magnetic sense of giving them the right rough bearing, but also their incredible sense of smell um, guiding them back to exactly the right position. But yeah, the, these, uh, these feats of navigation are um, a little bit more explicable if you consider another animal, the, uh, the senses of other animals, but still seem just extraordinary. So, so for example, a sea turtle hatching off the coast of Florida will head into the Atlantic Ocean and then do a decade-long lap of that ocean, swimming clockwise from America to Europe and then back again. Mm. If you take that baby turtle and expose it to the kind of magnetic fields it would experience at different points along that journey, it will swim in the right direction as if it were in that part of that ocean. Oh. And it will do that even if it has never been in the water before, which oh. I find truly incredible. So this might be unanswerable as, as a human, but like, how, how does an animal tap into an electromagnetic field? Um, do they just have a, a very different physiology than humans, something like that? Uh, so um, the, magne the, the strength of the Earth's magnetic field is um, incredibly weak. And that's one of the reasons why it's very hard to actually work out exactly how animals are sensing it. For the longest time, scientists believed that it was impossible because the field is so weak. Now, there are a few ideas. Some of them are, are truly bizarre, involving like quantum mechanics. But we, we don't know is the answer. We this is probably the sense that we understand the least. Um, the one where we don't know which is what's the equivalent of like an eye or an ear. What's the sense organ that gives animals this this incredible ability? And part of the the reason why we don't know that is that um, magnetic fields can penetrate through living tissue and and are unimpeded by tissue. So while I stop being able to see if I close my eyes, a magnetic field can move throughout my entire body, which means the organ that senses it could be anywhere. It doesn't have to be on the surface like an eye or an ear. It could be in the middle of my chest. It could be distributed throughout my entire body. Um, you, you d we don't know, and that's what makes the sense so very challenging to study. When you were writing this, uh, and, and just there you were using some language in which perhaps we could try and imagine what this feels like, but I, I'd Im I imagine that that was maybe a fascinating thing for you to try and explore. H how does one imagine or feel a sense that we don't have, right? Right, um, absolutely. We're limited both by our own senses, but also by our language. Um, our, our language is heavily visual, um, and that makes it difficult to talk about 
um, other senses, even ones we have, like hearing, but also difficult for, for senses that we don't have, like electroreception or magnetoreception. Um, that's, it is very challenging, and this has been a long-standing problem for this field. Um, the, the American philosopher Thomas Nagel wrote about this problem in his classic essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And he, he said that you could imagine flying about on leathery wings, um, but that's not going to tell you what it is like to perceive the world through echoes like a bat can, to release high-pitched calls and to gauge the distance to other objects by how long it takes those calls to bounce back to you. That's a sensory skill that most humans don't have, and that it is, and that is very hard to imagine. And it means that this, this, there's always going to be this gap between our subjective experience of the world and another creature's. And science can help to show us how big that gap is, or, or you know, um, how one might think about crossing it. But ultimately, to cross it, you need to make a leap of imagination. And that's what I'm trying to get people to do in this book. Mm. Just a moment ago, you, you talked about another very fascinating um, way in which animals can, can perceive reality, and this is echolocation. Mm -hmm. Dolphins do this very famously. Um, will you spend a moment explaining that? Because I, I'm so fascinated at how those creatures are able to, to make sense of the world through that means. You know, the, the basics are easy enough to get. Like you make a call, the call hits an object, it bounces back at you. And based on how long that process takes, you can gauge how far away that object is. But if you think about what a bat is doing as it echolocates, it, it's really remarkable. Sound loses a lot of energy in the air. So for the call to make the return trip to its target, the bat really has to scream. And bats are, you know, bat calls at their respective frequencies can be as loud as jet engines. It, it's a, a handy thing that we, they are too high pitched for us to hear, because if we could hear them, they'd probably be quite painful. The bat also needs to um, make these calls many, many times over and over again, because each call gives it just one snapshot of the world around it. Some bats might be able to release 200 calls a second. Mm. And they're timing these so precisely that um, sometimes they wait for the first call to return before they make the next one hundreds of times a second with no mistakes. And this um, ability, this, uh, this echolocation ability, give, allows them to do miraculous things like um, fly around uh, an obstacle-filled cave in pitch darkness, snatch a moth out of the sky, pluck spiders from their webs. Um, dolphins also can echolocate, and um, they do it with just as much precision as any bat. But underwater, because sound travels further in water, um, dolphins can use the echolocation to coordinate over large distances. Um, so, you know, they, they can detect objects um, a long way away, whereas a bat might only be able to, might be restricted to just a few feet. A dolphin can also use its sonar much like a medical scanner. You know, it can echolocate on when it, when it echolocates on a human diver, it can likely see their skeleton inside them. It can likely see their lungs inside them. You know, it may be a fetus if that person was pregnant. That's a very unique facet of dolphin echolocation that bats don't have. And I think that just adds another layer of fascination to their world. Another amazing sense, and it's one that humans have access to, is sound. But there's a lot of sounds around us that we just don't hear. Um, the tree hopper, for example, makes very interesting ones and use vibrations in interesting ways. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, tree hoppers are very small insects that sit on plants and drink their sap. Um, you probably haven't heard of them. Uh, if you have, congratulations. Um, but if you've been into any green space, if you walked in a park or a forest, you will almost certainly have been near a tree hopper without knowing it. Um, these insects send messages to each other by vibrating their abdomens and sending these seismic signals moving along the plants on which they stand. These are not sounds in the traditional sense. They're not audible to us. They're not moving through the air. They're moving through the solid surface of the plant. Um, and yet, they're, they're everywhere. Now, we can, we can convert these inaudible signals into sounds um, using just a simple clip-on microphone and um, an amplifier. And when you do that, what you, he what you hear are 
signals entirely unlike what you would imagine an insect could make. It's not like a chirp or a, or a click, like a cricket or a cicada. Um, th these, these signals sound melodic. They sound like birds or musical instruments. They might sound like monkeys or even machinery. They sound ethereal and, and haunting. Um, and they are abounding in the plants around us below the threshold of our perception. And this is just one example of the, the hidden realms that I'm, I'm, I talked about earlier that, that I want to clue readers of this book into. There's so much um, in the world around us that our umbelt locks us out of, but that other animals are picking up. Just curious, I mean, how much of the world do you think that we miss? Is there even a percentage that we can give it that you might guess after writing this book? You know, I don't think I can put a hard number onto it, but I think it, it is vast. You know, we've talked about um, magnetic fields. We've talked about um, these, these tree hopper signals. Um, you know, I cannot see um, ultraviolet light. And because of that, there are a lot of patterns in the world that I, that I miss, uh, or most humans miss. Um, many flowers have ultraviolet bullseyes and arrows and other signals that are drawn that are meant to attract um, insect pollinators, which can see ultraviolet. A lot of bird feathers um, look very different to birds than to us because mm. they reflect ultraviolet colors that we can't see. Um, you know, in terms of hearing, um, many animals produce and can hear ultrasonic frequencies, high pitch sounds like bats and dolphins make, which we can't hear. You know, mice and rats sing to each other in ultrasonic frequencies um, and have been doing so for as long as they've existed. Humans have lived with and studied mice and rats for decades, and people only really started understanding these ultrasonic choruses um, in the 70s, and then only in a really deep way in the last few decades or so. Mm. Um, so, you know, even in the senses we have and are familiar with, like sight and hearing, there's so much that we're missing. And then the, in terms of the ones we don't have, you know, the magnetic sensing, the electric sensing, that, that again deepens the extent of our ignorance. One thing I love about this book too is that you take animals that I think we maybe undervalue in terms of the richness in how they see the world. For example, a cow. I mean, you talk about how uh, their eyes are actually uh, so specifically and incredibly made that they can see in front, to the side, and behind them all at once. And it's just something we wouldn't associate with an animal like that. Right. Um, you know, they have, uh, and most other um, mammalian herbivores are like this, you know, so sheep are like this, goats are like this, like they, they'll have long focal zones um, that stretch across the horizon, whereas ours are concentrated in a bullseye in the middle of our field of view. Um, and yeah, we... Uh, this is an example not only of like the the expanded sensory repertoire that an, an, other animals have, but how we might misinterpret what animals are like if we mm. don't take those senses into account. You know, a cow looks dumb because it's just sitting there, not really moving. You walk up to it from the side; it might not turn and look at you. But turning and looking at something is a thing that you only need to do if you have two forward-facing eyes that can't see to the side and behind you. And we have that, but we then equate looking around uh, an active gaze with an active mind. And that just might not be the, be the case for, for a lot of animals. Like looking around isn't necessarily a thing that you need to do. A, a duck sitting on a pond can see the entirety of the sky above it without needing to turn its head. A heron sitting in that same pond can see fish swimming between its feet, even if its head is pointing straight forward. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of examples where we graft like human senses onto the bodies of other animals and then interpret their behavior accordingly and do so wrongly. And is it also true? I mean, there's there's creatures like scallops, right, that have many eyes. Um, yeah, so even very sim simple animals, animals that we might even think of animals, um, can have um, extraordinary stories to tell. So scallops um, are. Uh, most familiar to most people as like little lumps of flesh on a plate, but they are real animals. Um, they live, uh, they, you know, there's a huge, there's a whole animal inside that beautiful shell. And on the rim of that shell are dozens, if not hundreds of small eyes. Mm. The eyes can look really beautiful. In some species, they're electric blue, like, you know, little neon blueberries. Um, they also are pretty decent in terms of their optics. Um, 
Now, you might then think, should, does the scallop have like wraparound vision? Does it have this like beautiful scenery, uh, you know, this beautiful movie of the world as, as we do with our two eyes? And the answer is probably not. It, it seems that the scallops are doing something much simpler where the eyes, um, even though each can see a decent image, are really only sending the, the barest of signals to the scallop's brain, are sort of cueing the brain that something interesting is happening over there and is worth exploring through the other senses. Um, so, you know, some of the people I've talked to suggest that, that, that maybe it's that scallops see without scenes. You know, they have vision, they have all these eyes, but it's not like a, a, a visual movie is playing out in its brain. Mm. And that, again, I think is very hard to to imagine you know it, it's hard to think about what vision might be like without that kind of visual experience that is synonymous with vision for us one more creature and thank you for going through so many of these but i just can't i can't leave out some um and again thinking about these these creatures that we think of as kind of annoying or mundane the mosquito is one that comes to mind which uh, you you write about in this book as well why why should we care about this very pesky uh, little fly that likes to suck our blood what's going on there um, so mosquitoes are drawn to humans using a variety of incredible senses. So smell is an obvious one. They're drawn to the scent of carbon dioxide on our breath and the cocktail of um, odorous molecules that, um, that, uh, that, um, that bloom off our skin. They're also drawn to heat. Um, so the, the temperature of human skin is very attractive to them. Um, they, they are drawn to visual cues. You know, the large silhouette of a human attracts them. And they put all of these things together. So, you know, one reason we should care is that obviously a lot of people want us not to be bitten by mosquitoes. And one of the scientists I've spoken to, Leslie Bosshall, who's been trying to sort of befuddle the centers of mosquitoes for, for many years, um, says that it's incredibly difficult. You know, you can knock out a mosquito's entire sense of smell and it will still manage to find a human because it relies on a bunch of senses together. So if we want to actually achieve what we want to achieve, which is to stop mosquitoes from biting people, we're really going to need to think about its senses as a package. But I think, uh, you know, therein lies, there, is, is in, there lies an instructive lesson for us all. We've talked about, these animals like dogs and um, and turtles and so on, one sense at a time. You know, as dogs are paragons of smell, turtles have magnetic sensing, but no animal relies on just one sense. Even those that are amazing at one particular sense, they rely on all of them as a package. Mm. And that's the sort of lesson that the mosquito tells us that you know it's always about multiple senses at once. You know, wresting as much information from the world as is possible. I'm curious about this, which is kind of a philosophic question, but also one that has to get to biology and physiology, that being a human, I think we have made the argument, and this is also in many ways a religious or biblical argument, that we are the most complex, rational, creative, um, and um, you know, all-knowing creature. That, that's what we've bestowed upon ourselves, and we look at these other animals as if they are lesser than. and. Throughout researching this book, I mean, do you have a compelling case to make that, hey, maybe we're not the most sophisticated thing out there? There are other animals that are worthy of, of that kind of a, a designation. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. I, I don't think I've ever really believed that. And um, I certainly don't after writing this book. You know, I think the Umwelt concept is incredibly humbling because it tells us that all animals you know, have this sensory bubble. Um, all animals are limited in their own way. So we've already talked about the huge amount of information out there that I cannot sense. Um, and the animals that can sense it have their own limitations too. You know, the, the concept is, is a great leveler, I think. It puts humans um, among the rest of the animal kingdom as just one of many creatures that are um, have beautifully tuned senses, senses that are beautifully tuned to their needs, but are always restrained by physics and by biology. One thing, in one way, however, in which I think we are special is our ability to think about these other sensory worlds. 
Now, I don't think that my dog is sitting there wondering how I see the world. I don't think a turtle is spending its time in the sea thinking about how my dog is sniffing around its neighborhood. We do have that skill, and we may well be unique in having that. Um, to this, this ability to think about other Umwelten is our super sense. But I think that gives us um, a profound responsibility. And I think this is a huge gift that we have, and it's one that we should cherish and one that we should treat with the respect that it deserves. Mm. And this is another really important part of your book, which is looking at the human impact on the senses of these creatures that we don't even fully understand or that we're only beginning to through looking at some of the science that you're talking about today. I mean, we could talk about how light pollution is impacting uh, the different creatures or sound. So could you pick one of those and explain that a little bit? Sure, I'll give you an example of each. So for, for um, light pollution, um, by filling the night with light, um, scientists have shown that um, we push pollinating insects away from plants, um, you know, luring them literally like moths to flames. Um, sea turtles also sometimes crawl up towards beaches rather than towards the ocean because they're mm. distracted by lights and they'll, die as a, they'll often die as a result. Um, noise pollution can be equally harmful. Um, one classic experiment set up a phantom road in Idaho where um, scientists just lashed speakers to trees and played the noise recorded from a road. So no exhaust, no actual threat of being hit by a car. And yet a third of the birds in the nearby area just disappeared um, because they were put off by the, the level of noise. This is a thing that we do throughout the world. And we really have flooded the quiet with, with noise and the dark with light. And while we might not think of these things as pollutants, they very much are, and they are harming the animals around us. So to take that further, you would suggest we, we need to do things like eliminate LED lights that emit a lot of, of, of this kind of sight pollution out into the sky or, or really think about the way in which we are harming habitats through noise. These, these need to be taken seriously. Absolutely, you know, and um, and certainly like changing the wavelengths of LED lights to the, to colors that are less harmful to most animals. Um, you know, reducing noise pollution through all sorts of means by slowing down cars and ships, by mm. putting up um, uh, you know sand absorbing barriers. Um, there there are lots of ways of doing this, and I think that as with many of the great problems of our time, like you know pandemics, climate change. The real wins here are at a regular, regulatory level, at a policy level. And this is a problem for society as a whole to grapple with. It's not just a case of individual people like turning their lights off at night, right? Like this personal responsibility isn't going to compensate for societal irresponsibility. And we need you know, governments and you know, larger scale actors to take this problem seriously. Well, one reason to take it seriously is because it's actually a winnable um, it's a winnable problem. A lot of other ecological harms, you know, from plastics to pesticides to climate change, have momentum behind them. Things, these, these things are going to be a problem, even if we um, cease production of plastics and pesticides and greenhouse gases today. But light and noise pollution are easier to fix. You know, if we turn them down, they disappear. They don't linger. Um, and that's another reason why we should take this seriously. It's a very rare example of an ecological problem where we can do immediate good right now. And one, I mean, just amazing detail that comes up again and again in your book is just how sound is so vital under the ocean. I mean, we go under there and we don't really hear anything, but... You know, if we get back to the way that the dolphins hear or they send signals or plain sounds to attract these fish back, it, it's actually an environment that's very alive with sound, isn't it? Yes. Um, you know, Jacques Cousteau famously called um, the, the sea a silent world, and he was wrong in that. Um, so the ocean abounds with noise, um, and that noise, uh, that those sounds are in jeopardy. Um, so whale song is, is very famous as an underwater noise. But you know, there was a time before the rise of propeller ships where whale, a, a song of a blue whale would probably have carried across an entire ocean. Um, so whales might have 
communicated with each other over long distances. Maybe they use their sounds in 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 a in a in a way akin to echolocation, like mapping the the large scale features of the ocean. But in a noisier ocean, one dominated by shipping and in, in the noise of industry, whales hear over a much smaller radius than they once were able to. And it's the same with us in, in birds, like in, in the early pandemic, right? Their world shrinks. Mm. Um, and whales are so long lived that there must be whales alive today who once, you know, had a sense of a much wider and much fuller ocean than they do now. And that's just another example of sensory pollution is the pollution of disconnection. And it's not just true for us, it's true for other animals too. Yeah, and this is a theme that really strikes me, which is that we are shrinking our own worlds, our own ways of perceiving the world in the way that we're also doing this to other creatures. And, and, it's, and it's not expanding our vision of the world, but just as you say, we're kind of contracting in on ourselves the more we put this stuff out there. Yeah, we are. And and I think that it, it creates this vicious cycle where we think of nature as something that's very distant from us. Um, America in particular, I think, is very subject to this idea. Um, uh, think, think, ask people to think about wilderness. And I think people are will, will most often think of like the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone mm. or, or Yosemite, you know, Zion National Park, right? like far off grand sweeping vistas that are very, very removed from our daily reality. But I think if you, if you think about the Umwelt concept, the sensory worlds of other animals, you understand that wilderness is all around us. You know, wilderness exists in the nose of my dog or the eye of the starlings outside my window. Um, wilderness exists in the wilds of perception. And thinking about those sensory worlds is an act of travel, an act of adventure. One that I think clues us into how much of the world, um, even the world right around us at our doorstep and our backyards, we are missing all the time. And, and maybe I'm going to make a far off uh, spiritual or psychological leap here, but I, I remember interviewing on this program a woman named Elizabeth Mattis Namgel, and she was on a, a three year meditation retreat. And uh, I asked her, I said, how lonely did you feel when you were on that retreat? She said, actually, not lonely at all, because the more I was in a very quiet internal space, I began to notice very small movements around me. Suddenly, I began to see, you know, the ants crawl near me, which I would have never noticed before, or I began to hear birds that I had never heard before. And she talked about, I think, a more integrative way of experiencing reality. And you hear this from other great meditators or people that are in these kind of different mental states. Um, does that make sense the way I'm describing that to you? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, there is, there is power and glory in that stillness and that silence. Um, you know, how much of my life do I waste um, staring into my phone, you know, flooding my, my eyeballs and my ears with, you know, all kinds of nonsense that doesn't enrich my world. Um, you know, I think instead I feel happier and calmer and just more thoughtful when I'm out in nature. Um, you know, when I'm listening to birdsong, when I'm watching a body of water, when I'm you know, trying to pay attention to the small creatures around me. I, I think that's when I'm happiest. And I think it's when a lot of people are happiest. And, and I think, um, you know, that... That's part of the, the, the reason I wrote this book. I wrote A Men's World. It's to get people to stop and pay attention a bit more. You know, look at what your dog is sniffing on a walk, um, you know, rather than shooing away the spider in the corner of your room. Think about what it's feeling through its web. There's no end um, to extraordinary insights that one can have in even, in even ordinary moments. Um, if we just stop and think about what other creatures are experiencing. Well, I've been speaking with Ed Yong, Pulitzer Prize winning science writer at The Atlantic. He's the author of the new book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Ed, uh, thank you so much for this interview today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to chat to you. When we come back, animal dreams. We'll hear one perspective from philosopher David Pena Guzman. And a quick note about last week's show on loneliness and the importance of human touch. 
We got some lovely comments from Anne Espinosa-Drown and Jose Hernandez. Please keep them coming. We love hearing from all of you. We're also celebrating a milestone of 400 group members. Help us grow the Life Examined community by sharing our posts or your favorite episode with a friend or two. It goes a long way. Our Facebook group is an open forum to interact with the content and go behind the scenes of the show. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Ed Young, author of An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us, talk about the hidden sights, sounds, and more that are completely invisible and inaudible to human senses. So what more can we learn about the internal landscapes of animals? For example, do animals dream? Google sleeping animals or ask any pet owner, and it's clear that animals dream, and often with quite a lot of movement. But do animals dream in the same way we do? And if so, what does that tell us about their minds and cognitive complexity? In his book, When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness, author David Panaguzman says dreaming is a sign of, quote, artistic creation. David Panaguzman is associate professor at San Francisco State University, where he specializes in critical animal studies, the history and philosophy of science, and contemporary European philosophy. David Penaguzman, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here. I've always been kind of curious about this this large question of whether or not animals dream. Anybody who has a dog or a cat, I think, has wondered this. And I'm curious how you became fascinated in the subject of animal dream life and consciousness. Yeah, I think you're right that a lot of people already have this intuition that the animals that they share their life with dream when they go to sleep. And as an expert in the philosophy of animals, animal behavior, and animal cognition, I came to the realization that there are a lot of scientists who step away from that intuition uh, very intentionally, um, largely because they are concerned about possibly anthropomorphizing animals. Uh, They worry that if we say with any degree of certainty that those animals are probably dreaming, that we might be projecting a uniquely human capacity uh, onto them. And so in the course of doing research on uh, the latest (laughs) data that we have about animal neuroscience, animal cognition, animal metacognition, I stumbled upon a couple of research experiments on animal sleep. And again, I noticed that hesitancy And I came to the realization that there wasn't very much out there on the dream worlds of other species. There was virtually nothing written about it uh, from a scientific or from a philosophical perspective. And I told myself, I suppose, as a philosopher who is interested in the philosophy of animal minds, I should be the one to write it. And that's how this book, When Animals Dream, came about. Yeah. And if we step back and look at this, What's the significance of thinking about whether or not an animal dreams or not? How does it change the kind of the the moral status of the way that we think about an animal? Because the dream life is a very mysterious realm that that we consider and and go into in in the late parts of the evening. Yeah, and so to answer this question, I think we really have to take a moment and think about what a dream is at its most basic level. Because dreams are mysterious and they are fascinating. And that's why historically, this is a point that uh, Voltaire, uh, the French philosopher makes, this is why historically they have lived in the realm of superstition, in myth, in, um, in religion, and even in metaphysics. And so we have this inkling that dreams almost open a portal to another world. Uh, What that world is, we struggle to say and to articulate, but we have a sense that there is a break between the world as we normally experience and then this new world that is opened up in the context of a dream. And one of the things that I emphasize in my book 
is that when you focus on the dream worlds of other animals, there are two consequences. The first one is that it invites you to wonder about the depths of the animal mind, because at its most basic level, a dream is an alternative reality that is created by a living subject, by an animal, human or non-human, under the most unimaginable conditions of all, which is when you're asleep. And what happens when we fall asleep is, of course, that our senses are divorced from the external world. We close our eyes. We're not seeing what's around us. We're not hearing what's around us. And yet the mind, almost by a, a power that comes from the deepest part of it, manages to generate an entire world that the subject experiences as real. And so from a cognitive perspective, the dreams of other animals bring to the foreground what in the book I describe as the fundamentally artistic quality or power of the animal mind. The fact that the minds of many animals of very different species can generate in the context, in the context of sleep a world that counts as the real for that animal. And so there's a cognitive story to be told here about appreciating the radical diversity that exists that exists in nature when it comes to the very many kinds of minds that evolution produces. But of course, as a philosopher, I'm also interested in the philosophical question of morality and ethics. And uh, the book actually closes with me talking about the moral implications of animals that have dreaming minds, where I, I suggest that if you have an animal that has this radical power of artistic creation during sleep, it follows that that animal is entitled to what philosophers and ethicists call moral status or moral standing. And that means that they are entitled to be treated with respect and with dignity, which currently many animals are not. Mm, no, this is really interesting. And uh, if we just look, though, at at the research that you came across and the neuroscience, and then I want to get back to these, the big philosophical questions, I love those. <laughs> but, but just looking at the data in and of itself, is there reason to think that animals really do enter these creative dream states that, that we know humans have? I believe so. And I differentiate between three kinds of evidence that we could point to to make the case for the dreams of other animals. The first kind of evidence is behavioral evidence, and that's just what the bodies of animals do during sleep. Um, you can uh, Google animal streaming on YouTube and you will get a lot of videos of dogs and cats because those are the animals that we typically uh, videotape uh, because they, uh, they share their lives with us in, in a domestic space. And there's a lot of videos of these animals sleeping and suddenly breaking into what are called oneric behaviors while asleep that suggests that there is a mental replay of a waking experience going on. So think about a dog on its side, suddenly moving its paws in such a way that it's running or in such a way that it's fighting. Um, and so those behaviors, which often are extremely detailed and very easy to interpret, not always, but in some cases very easy to interpret, are already behavioral indicators of an underlying dream phenomenology. And so I talk, of course, not only about YouTube videos, uh, but I talk about laboratory experiments and field observations that we get from scientists also producing and interpreting and analyzing many of those behaviors in many species. So that's one kind of evidence that we get. The second kind of evidence that I talk about is uh, neuroscientific evidence that has to do with what the brains of animals do in sleep. And over the last 30 to 40 years, we've learned a great deal about the kinds of patterns of neuronal activity that go on at particular stages or phases of the sleep cycle in many animals. Uh, here we're talking certainly about mammals, but we're also talking about birds. We're talking also about fish. We're talking about cephalopods, such as octopuses. And so I talk about all these different species in the book to give us a sense of just how, how widespread the phenomenon is. Mm. And in short, um, the neuroscientific evidence suggests that when animals fall asleep, they start replaying neurally very specific episodes that are so clear and discreet 
that we can actually map them onto the waking experiences, the waking experiences that they recreate. So you can draw these perfect parallels between what the brains say of a finch, uh, a, a particular kind of bird is doing when it's asleep and what it's doing at a particular moment when it's awake, suggesting that subjectively the same thing is happening at both of those moments. And the last kind of evidence that I talk about is evidence from functional neuroanatomy, uh, which dates all the way to the 1960s. And this is evidence that hinges on making surgical interventions into the animal brain. Uh, much of this research originated with the work of a French neuroscientist called Michel Jouvet, who came up with an idea. And the idea was that normally when we fall asleep, we are recreating an entire world in our mind. But how come we are not acting out what's happening in that world? How come we're mostly asleep, mostly immobile, with a few exceptions, right? We, we're all familiar with eye movements. Occasionally, our arms might go up and down. But in general, we are somewhat immobile. And he came up with the idea that perhaps we could cut out the part of the brain that induces that state of atonia during sleep to see if when we dream, we suddenly release all those behaviors that are happening in the dream world. And to his surprise and the surprise of a lot of researchers in the 1960s and 70s, he discovered using um, primarily cats as his research subjects, that in fact, if you cut out this very critical part of the brainstem, cats will begin acting out their dreams completely. Mm. And you can also find videos of uh, Jouvet's uh, cats in his laboratory who start running around and jumping and attacking imaginary enemies all while completely asleep. So to me, this, this raises some really interesting questions about how we define complexity in human life. And I think that you're making this this really this fascinating point, which is that the dream life has something to do with that. And I, you know, I think of early pioneering psychologists like Carl Jung, who were just fascinated in questions of dreams and specifically the unconscious life, as if that's the magical realm uh, that that makes the human um, you know, sophisticated or artistic or spiritual. And what I'm gathering from the way you're talking about this is that this is something not just defined to humans, um, but it really, it exists in the animal life all around us, which I think gives us a different way of thinking about these creatures. I think that's right. And one way to think about this is through a topographic metaphor of surface and depth. We tend to think that only humans have mental depth. There is what is on the surface. And then if you start digging, you can find complexities that were not visible at the beginning. But because of the history of anthropocentrism, we, we tend to believe that animals don't have that, that mm. animals live life on the surface, just gliding on the surface of things. And uh, I think in particular, dreams, add a, a the, dreams are a refutation to that belief. Uh, especially because of the connection between dreams and emotion. And in the book, I do talk about psychoanalysis, not from a Jungian perspective, but from a Freudian perspective. And the reason is that Freud, of course, argued that dreams are uh, the royal road to the unconscious because yeah. you can get to somebody's unconscious by analyzing their dreams. And we now know that that is true insofar as dreams typically reflect some of our most emotionally charged concerns, our fears, our phobias, our desires. And there is research, uh, scientific research, to suggest that the same is true of animals, that animals store particularly powerful emotional memories in what we can call their unconscious, and that it's in the context of a dream that those memories sort of surface back and pierce through the veil of conscious awareness, and they liberate themselves. And one example of this is the, is the case of animal nightmares. I talk about various cases, various anecdotes, but also some laboratory research that has been conducted on uh, inducing nightmares in a laboratory. 
And what we know is that many animals experience night terrors, mm. uh, largely in the wake of trauma. And that trauma has been repressed and often comes out in these very unexpected ways. So I do talk about the animal unconscious. Uh, it's just from a uh, more Freudian than Jungian perspective. When we add up all of the arguments that you've you've brought to us today, what how should this change the conversation around the way that we treat animals? Well, on the one hand, I think we need to come to terms with the fact that other animals are subjects of experience. Animals are not limited to basic sensory impressions or instinctive reactions to the world. I think that's still a very common view, even among contemporary scientists, that humans have a, a kind of complexity or a doubling of the mind that allows us to mediate our relationship to the world, whereas animals just react in the same way whenever the same stimulus is presented. And the concept of complexity that you alluded to earlier, I think helps us move away from that, especially because dreams are nothing if not hyper-complex mental states. They're mm -hmm. complex because of their origin. Again, we dream when we're disconnected from the world and they're complex even in their content. One of the things that we know about dreaming is that they're extremely bizarre. And so I really hope that this book changes the conversation in the sense of making us wonder about the minds of other animals. I also wanted to make us pause by making us aware of the differences that are still there between our experience of the world and the experience of other animals. Because as I point out in the book, it's one thing to say that animals dream and that humans dream, and therefore to establish a parallel between those two claims. But it's a whole other thing to say that animals dream in the same way that we dream or about the same things that we dream about. And so here we need to let our imaginations take over and be open to the possibility that just like the waking worlds of animals are very different to ours, so too their dream worlds. Their dream worlds are going to be radically unlike the dream worlds that we have as human beings. I've been speaking with David Pena Guzman, Associate Professor of Humanities and Liberal Studies at San Francisco State University and the author of When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness. David, thank you so much. This was really interesting. I appreciate the time. Thank you for the invitation. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. We'd love to hear from you about this episode. Was there anything you heard that changed the way you perceive animal life? Chime in on our Facebook page. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.